book of Daniel. We've, uh, if you're just joining us, we've been studying through the book, and we are going at a snail's pace, covering the chapter by chapter, and sometimes two weeks taking a chapter. It's a story about Daniel, who has a young boy, 15 years or older. So he and his, uh, his compatriots, a number of the Jewish nobility boys, were taken as captives in 605 when the Babylonians made their first invasion of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. Then they come again in 597, and they come again in 586, and in 586, they totally wipe out the Jewish nation. And there is no nation of the Jews, no capital city for 70 years because of what God had said in their disobedience of not keeping the Sabbaths for, uh, for multiple times, that they're going to have 70 years that the ground is going to remain fallow. And so what happens in chapter 1, we introduce to Daniel, find out he's going to be prepped to become a, um, a servant in the court. He doesn't want to eat their food because it's non-kosher, and so he gives them an option. Would you serve me something different and see and answer a prayer if God would keep me in good health? God does. Daniel and his friends at the end of chapter 1, they're excelling above all the other young men who are in this program. Chapter 2, the uh, king has a dream, and it's a dream about future events. It gives the different great, great human empires that affect the Middle East, uh, and it talks about the different ones, the head of gold, and the, as it goes through all the way down to what we know as the kingdom of Antichrist, which is further explained in the New Testament, built upon Daniel chapter 2. And so Daniel is the only one able to interpret it. All the wise men were brought, and none of them could do it, but Daniel's able to do it. And so then all of a sudden that affects the king. The king makes comments about how great God is and how wonderful God is to be able to control history this way. Chapter 3, the king builds a statue. Everybody has to bow down and worship the statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's compatriots, they refuse to do it and violates the command of having no other God. They are put in the fiery furnace. They are all of a sudden accompanied by the Son of God who is walking around in the fire with them and they aren't singed. The king's response at the end was nobody, and he makes a decree, nobody can say anything bad about the king, uh, about the God of the Jews and nobody can mock him. Nobody can say anything against their God and he is the most uh, powerful God of gods. Interesting what happens then uh, in the next few chapters when you keep that in mind. Chapter 4, the king is, several years later, the king is all of a sudden becoming more and more proud because of great achievements. He's warned in a dream that he's going to all of a sudden suffer seven years of animalistic behavior. He's going to lose his senses. He's going to eat in the fields. He's going to be brought low because of his pride. He, a year later, 12 months later, he's walking around and he's warned by Daniel, but he gets up and he just says, hey, um, look at everything that I've done. And immediately he is afflicted by God. He is humbled for those seven years. When he gets his senses back, he again exalts the God of the Hebrews and mentions them. Uh, mentions to all of the people in all the lands that this is the God of gods. This is the one who is most holy, able to lift up, able to take back down. And then you come into chapter 5 and we jump ahead a number of years. There's no explanation of chronology. You just read in chapter 5 that all of a sudden in this story of the hand on the wall, there's a new king. His name is Belshazzar. And we've all of a sudden have shifted a number of years ahead of in the story. And uh, it doesn't give us background information, but we can add that background information. And what we find out is that in this chapter, uh, the same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar is going to happen to King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is going to be lifted up in pride, and as a result, he's going to fall down low. You know how that passage says, pride goeth before destruction, and do you remember the rest of it? A haughty spirit before the 
fall. Okay. Now, some people take it really literally. That's been one of the memory verses for one of my grandchildren. And so they were working at home last week, the week before, and they were talking about don't be proud, don't be proud. The parents were instructing, don't be proud. You'll let others go first, different things. And remember this verse, you don't want to be proud. And so all of a sudden while they were working and doing, they were cutting apples or cutting some fruit, and uh, the comment was made by by Preston, after he cut it, he says, my whatever piece of fruit, it is better than anybody else. And his sister says to him, you're not supposed to be proud because if you be proud, something might fall. And just then he dropped this fruit on the ground. And he said, see, it's true. A haughty spirit goes before the fall. I'm not sure exactly that's what God meant, that you're going to drop the fruit. But it made an impact on his mind, and it's a biblical principle. And these two guys are classic illustrations of how in their pride, all of a sudden, they experience a fall because of their haughtiness. And so in Daniel chapter 5, what is the story is Belshazzar is the king. He is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. There's been several kings in between. There's been overthrows, etc. His dad... Nabonidus is, uh, is actually the king, but he is out in battle. He's, he, Nabonidus is not the one who is wanting to keep everything the same. So basically, the, the court has put Nabonidus out in the battlefield, which he enjoys, keeping him out of the capital. He's the king. Uh, Belshazzar is second in control, but actually the operating one who is, who is really taking care of the kingdom. And that's why in Daniel 5, he can say, whoever can interpret the handwriting on the wall, they'll be third in the kingdom. And again, I mentioned last week, people have been critical of the Bible. How could the king say, you'll be third in the kingdom when he is number one? What's that? It's a mistake. No, it's a historical accuracy of the Bible, proven once again, when we are able to put the pieces together through historical uh, archaeological digs, things like that. And all they do is they verify what the Bible says. So Nabonidus goes out to meet the upstart Medo-Persian uh, army. He is defeated by them. He flees south, leaves Babylonia, Babylon open to attack. And the Medo-Persians laid siege to the city, which is, at that time, considered invincible. It's, uh, it's it got huge walls, huge defenses. And in, while they're under siege, Belshazzar and his lords, as we read in the first five, four verses, they have this huge party. It's more like an orgy where they bring the ladies in, which isn't typical that they bring their wives into these parties, but this time they do. They bring all these people in and they have this, this uh, tremendous occasion where they're celebrating while there's a siege going on. Very proud, very pompous, very arrogant. And then what happens is, you read those first three verse, uh, four verses, they want to show disdain for other gods. The one god that they particularly pick on is Jehovah. And so they send for somebody to get the vessels that were taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded it back in 586. They say, bring all those, tem those temple vessels, and we're going to use them to drink and to party hardy with. And so as a result of their, uh, their disrespect for the Lord, as a result of their, their um, putting down Jehovah God, God's going to bring judgment. And it comes about that very evening that what happens is uh, all of a sudden there's the handwriting on the wall. Now, a key verse, if you jump down into the text, go to verse 22. When Daniel finally shows up into the room and tells them what the writing means, he makes a comment. He says, you knew this. You knew all of this. In other words, you knew what your grandfather had said. You knew how your grandfather had opposed 
Judaism at one time and the God of gods, but he was humbled. You know how he had made decrees about not mocking, not, not tearing down the God of the, of the Jews. And you heard those things. You grew up in the palace. And Daniel makes comment, you know this. You know this, but you are going against what you know in your arrogance and your, and your uh, pride. And so what happens is then all of a sudden there's this handwriting on the wall that nobody can figure out. And when the handwriting on the wall occurs, there's a supernatural uh, way that it comes. There's the fingers of a man's hand, and it's writing on the wall. And as it's writing, Belshazzar and the lords, they're shaken. I mean, they're absolutely moved. The passage gives the impression that Belshazzar loses not only, uh, well, he sobers up real quickly, but he loses control of his bowels, apparently. And so they're shaken to a, to a real, real point of fear and terror. And it's the whole room. And so what he does is he calls for the wise men to interpret. Here we go again. This is the third time in the book of Daniel and in five chapters. Wise men are called to give interpretation every time the wise men are not wise. And so they become looking like fools. And finally the queen comes in and, and says, wait a minute, there's, um, there's somebody who can do this interpretation. And uh, historians think it's the queen mother. But she comes in and she's making comment to Belshazzar, there's a man who worked in, in your father, your grandfather's kingdom, and he can interpret. And so she makes comments that are just really, really amazing comments when she talks about Daniel. We're jumping down in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of thy, your father, grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. That's amazing that she would say that about him. And so she remembers him. She talks about how he is this man that can interpret this, whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, the king, I say, your father, made master or head over or exalted above the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences, dissolving of the doubts, were found in this same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Interpretation. Then verse 13, was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said, Are you that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I even have even heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation. But they could not. And I have heard of thee and that you can make interpretation and dissolve the doubts. Clear up the questions. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with scarlet, have a chain of gold about your neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. So Daniel now is there. He's showing up. He's called by his name, Daniel, which is interesting. Belteshazzar, Belshazzar doesn't use his Babylonian name. And he refers to him as being the captive. Doesn't refer to him as being the major statesman under Nebuchadnezzar doesn't refer to him as being this, this one who is in charge for so many years. But rather what he talks about is you were a captive. You were a captive some, you know, 70 years ago. You were a captive. And here he comes in, walks in. And so you have, you have this, I think it's a put down. Belshazzar pleads for Daniel's assistance though. He says, please interpret. If you interpret, okay, then I'll reward you. Daniel's response is amazing. Daniel, look at the next verse. Keep your gifts. Keep your gifts. Yeah, there's a point here. The point is that those who are these prophets of God and the, who, are, who are men, 
who stood up and made a, made a real impact, they weren't motivated by the riches of this world. They were basically, those weren't going to be that which drew their attention and dictated. Can you think of any men in scriptures, the Old Testament, who they had opportunity to have great wealth, but they just said, no, I don't want it. Can you think of, Moses is the first one that comes to mind, right? Because Moses had all the riches of Egypt, but he just, they, they, it wasn't something that he wanted or needed, it was serving God. And so he, he says in the New Testament, he esteemed the reproach for Christ greater than the riches. You have Samuel, who when he was a prophet, he made this comment, well, whom have I defrauded? And th- this was very typical. Remember in the book of Judges, you paid people to do your bidding. And so it was very common that, like his sons and others, that they were, um, uh, they were taking money. Even like Eli, uh, uh, is that right? Eli's boys were taking money as well. Whom I have, whom, of whom have I defrauded? Who've, who, who gave me a bribe? So he wasn't motivated to do ministries to get gain. You have Paul in the New Testament, I've coveted no man's silver. You have Daniel make this statement, let your gifts be to yourself, give your rewards to somebody else. I don't need them. I don't need them. Okay, and it wasn't, it wasn't that he is saying, you know, your stuff is tainted. It's just a, it's a statement of fact that we who are serving the Lord, you who are following the Lord, that we are not supposed to be caught up in the love of money. Okay, uh, and so we're supposed to be honoring the Lord. Here's Daniel. He's real polite, but he's very bold. Remember the setting. This guy is in a drunken, drunken stupor that they're having this party. He's, um, he's arrogant. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who, you know, would take people out and without, without any hesitation. Look at what happens in verse 17. Daniel says, let your gifts be to yourself. Give them to somebody else. Yet I will read the writing unto the king. I will make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for that majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew. This is the grandfather. Whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he set up. Whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingdom. And they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of the heaven. Till he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of heaven. And that he appoints over it whomsoever he wills. You, his son, grandson, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you know all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine in them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, stone, which see not, hear not, know not, and the God in whose hand your breath is and whose all your ways are has you, have you not glorified. And so then, I mean, I mean, seriously, think of Daniel saying this to this guy. It is an amazing, amazing statement that he makes, that he points out, King, you know better. How many times do people in great authority take rebuke? Not usually, right? No, no, that's not the norm. Here he's rebuking him, and he's making comments, and just let's, let's highlight the five statements. He makes five statements about God. Okay, that Belshazzar, this is you and God. This is what's happening here. He makes it clear that God is the one that gave your grandpa the kingdom. In other words, Belshazzar, this isn't something you inherited. Yes, you did. Humanly, you inherited this from God, uh, from, from Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. But actually, what's he implying? 
God gave you this kingdom. This isn't something that you got of your own, your own accord. And he makes that comment again. God sets up, God takes down. Just like Nebuchadnezzar had finally gotten in his brain. God took out your grandpa. He makes it clear that God took down your grandpa because of his pride. Okay, and so, you know, you're, th- this is a very pointed statement of what happened. You're bringing up some family history that typically in nobility, what do they do with this type of family history that somebody went nuts? Well, they would hide it, right? Right? Typically back in ancient, I mean, is it even in modern history, do, uh, do you remember any president who hid his physical defect? Roosevelt, right? Went to great pains you know, to make sure that he didn't appear in any way weak during World War II. And so this was very typical, but Daniel brings up this past that probably wasn't recorded in the record books, per se. You know, that were in the published, that which was being put in, you know, common libraries. Your grandpa had to recognize God's sovereignty before he was restored. And remember, now remember this, who are, who is Belshazzar, who is he celebrating in his party? Do you remember? This statement is critical. When you go back to chapter 6 and go verse 4. Verse 4. They drank wine and praised what? The gods of... of, What do you got in chapter 6, verse 4? I'm sorry, sorry, chapter 5. I keep saying chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 4. The beginning of the party. Who are they celebrating? The gods of iron, wood, stone, silver. Who are those? Okay, they're, they're, they're idols. They're idols. They're, they're all the different idols. And so they, this party was all about celebrating their idols, their deities. And here comes Daniel with boldness saying this comment. Your God had to recognize there was one God who was sovereign. That's an amazing statement in the light of this party. How bold Daniel was, how clear he was. And he says, then he says to the king, without hesitation, you've committed the same sin of pride. I mean, seriously. Seriously. How many people would be bold enough to say to somebody in this position, uh, you're wrong? Do you remember any other time that Daniel was bold this way to say to a king, you need to repent of your acts of unrighteousness. Do you remember when he did that? When he warned him that you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose your sanity, but you need to repent and stop doing your, and, and turn to acts of righteousness rather than the way you're living. This Daniel is an amazing character. He is gracious. He is um, respectful, but he is bold in sharing God's word and God's truth. And then he makes the follow-up coming. You haven't honored God. You haven't honored God. You just haven't honored God. By the way, when it says that you shall have no other gods before me, how many people does that apply to? Does that apply just to the Jews? No, it applies universally. It applies universally. Because you go to the book of Romans, and what does he talk about? How people have worshipped what more than the Creator? The creation and the creatures. more, And he makes it a universal issue. And so here it is. Daniel has the universal aspect that everybody, including this Gentile king, is supposed to be worshiping and giving honor to God properly. And so basically here's what you got. You have Daniel saying to the king, you know what I've just said is true. You know this is true. This, I'm not making this up. 
And, you know, this knowledge that you have makes you more, more vulnerable, or should we say more responsible and liable. This is very similar to Jesus when he gives the gospel. Do you remember when he goes to Bethsaida and he preaches the word of God and he says basically to them, you are going to be held to a greater accountability because you have, compared to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. When he says to Bethsaida and Chorazin, you have seen and been given more revelation more instruction than Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than of you. Basically, the truth is this. The more we know, the more we're going to be held accountable. Okay. And so he says that to Belshazzar, and he again repeats that idea, and therefore you've been judged. Now that's the, that's the setting. Belshazzar is not doing something, and here, he, the, the reason I'm bringing this up, one commentator that I found online makes this comment. He says, if this story was true, and he uses a big if, so he's critical of the Bible. If this story is true, this once again shows the, the, the um, how does he use it? He, he, the vindictiveness of God of the Old Testament. How God is this unjust God. And he's criticizing, saying God in the Old Testament is wrathful and he wipes people out and he's unjust. And this man's making this criticism. And his comment basically goes, goes along and he says this, because Belshazzar grew up in a pagan environment. Belshazzar wouldn't have heard like the Jews had the word of God. Belshazzar was innocent because he was ignorant. He was ignorant. Okay, even, even if you want to go to that area to say that people, all, you know, people don't have a conscience and don't have creation, even if you want to say, okay, it's totally dependent upon instruction, in this case, did Belshazzar have instruction? Yes. You knew this. You heard this. You know what your grandpa said. That, that is critical mass in what happens in this account, is that the judgment comes. Now, the judgment is this, basically. Here are the, the descriptive words that are on the wall that are there. Okay? And when we talk about this judgment and what the message is that the wise men couldn't read, but Daniel was, let's make observations. The message that is written on the wall is very short. Okay? The message on the wall was visible to many people. So this wasn't like somebody's figment of imagination. This wasn't like you can see it, but you can't. And okay, so there's debate. It was visible. They're all astonished by it. It stayed on the wall for a period of time. How long it stayed, we don't know. But it was there long enough that they saw it at the party. They got Daniel. And then there's ability that everybody sees the confirmation of, of this, this situation. Something else, we think it's in Aramaic because the translation of this portion of the text is in Aramaic. So it seems to be in Aramaic, which may have contributed to the idea of why the wise men could not read this because it's a combination of Hebrew and other, other uh, words. Here, here's some of the things just keep in mind. When you're getting into Aramaic and you're getting into Hebrew, there are no vowels. Typically, you go from left to right. Well, not typically. That's what you always do. There were no vowels. So basically, you're, where, where in the English you would have mene or mina, that's because we don't know. We don't know at this point what it was in the original. In the original Old Testament scriptures, there's no, they, they didn't have vowels. So you determine a lot of it by context. And so what happens is when you look at it, you go, okay, MN, MN, TKL, and the PH, the RSN. And so people years later, and then putting it in and translating and getting it scripturated, they would, they would help to explain. What I'm getting at is uh, when you have this written down, you'd have no vowels and you have no breaks in your words. 
And as a result, the Babylonian scholars couldn't figure this one out. Could be because the language was different than what they're used to. It could be because there's double meanings in some of these words. The uh, mene or mina could be, you know, when you're looking at it in the Aramaic, they could have the idea of two different words. Um, let, me, let me see if I can illustrate. Bank, B-A-N-K. Is bank a verb or a noun? Okay. Does it always mean a place where you put your money? What else can it mean? Bank of a river means you know, a bank when you're banking the car. Uh, it, could be, you know, it could be the verb. Okay, certain words in their sentence and context, they take on different meanings. They don't always show up the same just by spelling. And so in this case, it would be hard to interpret because some of these words, Eupharsin, uh, is he saying, is he saying in the, if the guys were to first look at it, is he saying uh, it's the Persians? Or is he talking about the word divided or held accountable? And you have different words. And so context. Daniel understands the context. Daniel is the only one who gets it and puts it all together. And even, by the way, just for your information, probably was mene mene tekel, u is the wow in the, in the Hebrew Aramaic, which is and. Um, but that would have thrown him if they were unfamiliar with that, u being the wow conjunction. And so you can understand why God has blinded the wise people. But when Daniel came in, God gave him clarity to understand exactly the context, which words they were, and what the meaning was with, with obvious clarity. And so Daniel stands and says, okay, here's basically what it is. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. That's the basic message that's given. Belshazzar, you've been judged. You've been judged because you knew things, but you just kept on going and going. You were warned. Um, I, can I throw something out to you? Is Daniel in the capital? This is, note your question. Is Daniel in the capital? Yes. yes, he is. Is Daniel close by? Yes. yes, he is. Could Belshazzar have had audiences with Daniel or vice versa? Yes. Okay. And so here you have this great, 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 great wise man that the older generations recognize as a wise man. Why didn't young Belshazzar listen to and run to the older, wisest man in the kingdom? Does that ever happen? Do sometimes, well, okay, let's talk. Do sometimes when new people come into office, do they clear out all the administration? Do they? And who do, do, they, do they keep, do they look and say, we're going to go only on merit? Smart, you know, they've, they've really contributed, they've done a good job. Is that way, the way our government works all the time? No. Well, usually what is it that gets people in the promotions? Friendship, relationship, contact. Sometimes, I know it's rare in American history, maybe contributions. <laughs> Does that play, play into it? It does, okay. And even in the Bible times, can you think of a young person, a young ruler, who dismissed older counselors? Oh, it's a classic case in scriptures. Anybody remember who it is? Solomon's son. Do you remember him? Do you remember his name? Ray? Yeah, Rehoboam. Rehoboam. He was told, he was told that the people are starting to revolt. The people don't like What? What, what was their big issue? The taxes. 
And the older counselors said, what you should do is relieve the taxes, relieve the pressures. The younger men told him, yeah, show them who's boss. You know, the more you tax, the more they'll fear you and follow you. So he listened to the younger men, not the older men. And what happened? Rebellion. Revolt. Lost ten of the twelve tribes. That's from the human perspective. Did God, was God maneuvering behind the scenes? No doubt. But is there a principle that at times we should listen to older, wiser counselors? Yes? Okay. And usually we don't listen to our parents until we finally figure out that they're wise and we're about how old when that finally happens? Right? Yeah, yeah. When we get a little, so here, Belsh, and, and what I'm saying is this Belshazzar is responsible. He is being judged. He knew better. He had opportunity because Daniel was around, but he just, he just dismissed it all. So, despite the point of the message, there is something missing in the text. After the message is delivered, delivered it says, verse 29. The command, then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold about his neck. Daniel said you could keep it, but Belshazzar's a man of his word. Okay? He puts a chain of gold about his neck, made a proclamation that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Anybody by just, just... Is there another reason why Daniel didn't care about being promoted? They said you can keep it. Is there any other thought that might be going through your mind why Daniel, besides he's not motivated by money, we know that. But, what's that? The, the kingdom's over in hours. Yeah, Daniel knows, great, give me, all, give me this position, but it's going to be, by the way, could it be threatening to Daniel to be the third ruler but come the midnight hour? Yeah, and so Daniel, but Daniel's, still, you know, the, again, I think what this shows you is Daniel, don't, don't, don't misinterpret the passage, for Daniel to stand there and let himself be elevated, what does that display towards authority over him? He's accepted. There's a, there's a matter of respect. He just didn't say, you're nuts, get away from me. Okay, in his boldness. That here, is, here is part of that portrayal of his respect towards the authority, though he's bold towards them. I don't need it. I don't want it. Actually, it's going to be meaningless. Okay, go ahead and do what you're going to do rather than make a big issue out of it. And so here's what the story goes. He commanded that Belshazzar, um, then commanded Belshazzar, Daniel is elevated. In that night, Belshazzar, the king in the, uh, of the Chaldeans, was killed. There's something missing from Belshazzar. You would have thought. If you were Belshazzar, what would you have done? Repent. Repent. Do you notice there's no repentance? Now, whether he did or not, we don't know other than he just continued. He, he, the action that he did towards Daniel indicates what? From his perspective. Let's go back to what you just said. Daniel thinks it's worthless because it's going to be meaningless in hours. Belshazzar thinks it's meaningful because he's still proud. He's not thinking this is... You know, can, can I get out of it? So what you have here is there's no sign of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar was repentant. Remember after Nebuchadnezzar was embarrassed by the fiery furnace incident? Nebuchadnezzar made a decree that contradicted what his initial decree was. 
We need to not mock or ridicule the God of the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar had that spirit. After he, was, after he got his senses back to him, God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords, he's the one and only. There is nothing like that in Belshazzar at all. Not a mention, not a hint to it. Seems to be the implication that he wasn't going to budge, he was going to continue what he's doing. So Daniel's given the rewards. Now, here's what we got, the judgment delivered. We mentioned this last week. That night... Uh, the passage says, and, and I need to explain something just because of, if you're going to teach this, you have to address a couple things here. In that night, Belshazzar was slain. Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Um, as predicted, the judgment swift, sudden. The Babylonians, you know, the, you know, they thought they were invincible. They went down like the Titanic that night. The history clearly states the Babylonians fell to Cyrus the king, who rules for nine years after the fall of the city. Look at the passage. It says, who did it? Darius, Darius, however we want to say it. We'll say it both ways. The Mede. But history tells us Cyrus was the one. In fact, if you go to other passages of Scripture that are parallel to this same time period, they say Cyrus is the one. They indicate Cyrus is the one that took down the city. Do you, do you get where I'm going with this? What are, what are people going to do with this passage? They're, they're going to they're gonna criticize it. They're going to say there's a contradiction, okay? And this is a major contradiction, okay? Because this passage says Cyrus, but take your Bibles and go to Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, okay, and then into 45. Just turn there for a second and mark your Bibles. In the book of Isaiah, which was written about 150 years before this, there's an interesting phrase that Isaiah makes about the fall of Babylon, wherein Babylon was a mighty power. Go to Isaiah 44 and go down to verse 28, okay? Oh, we read this. That saith of or about Cyrus, he is my shepherd, shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Do you know what, he's, what this prophecy is about? Do you remember the setting of what he's saying in this verse? He's talking about and predicting the Jews are going to be taken into captivity for 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, a decree will be made to rebuild the city. Okay? To go back or the temple. And there's, you know, there's multiple different decrees that show up. But he's saying Cyrus is going to be the one to help the Jews to get back. Go to verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holded, to subdue all nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him, to leave gates, the gate shall not be shut, I will go before you, etc., etc. And he goes on and talks about, my point is, 150 years before the book of Daniel, the time of Daniel, in Daniel 5, the man was named that he was going to be the ruler who would return and allow the Jews to start returning to the, the land after captivity. And so he's a key figure. He's mentioned here in the book of, of Isaiah. And all of a sudden we come to the book of Daniel and we start reading about a new king, Darius or Darius the Mede is mentioned in this passage. And um, so what you have is in history, and here's, here's the, the, the crux of it. In history, there is no mention of a Darius the Mede at this time. Now, later on, there's going to be, in a, in a successive generation, there's going to be a Darius Darius. There's going to be a one, a two, a three that'll show up in historical records. 
So we come to Daniel chapter 5. You've got the third person in the kingdom being debated by scholars, quote-unquote. You've got the name of Darius Darius the Mede being mentioned as the one taking out the city. But historically, it's Cyrus. So this passage is filled with what? It's filled with errors. Therefore, you cannot trust the Bible. So you and I as Bible, Bible, Bible students, we've got to be able to say, then what is this? Is this a mistake? Let's go back to the original language. That's, that's our catch-all. We'll run back to the original language, and it'll clear it up. Guess what the original language says? Darius the Mede. So how do we address this? How do we answer this when it says, okay, it's a different, they're, they're, it's, it's the wrong guy according to Daniel chapter 5, verse 31? Anybody have your answer written in your Bible? Do you have an idea? Remember, we need to give a reason clearly of why we believe and is, is there a mistake here? I don't believe there's a mistake. And I think there's some really easy answers to it. And there's multiple options given. But let's just talk about it. Um, there's no one person in this time period who's called Darius the Mede. He shows up later in the Bible. Okay? So the, there's the criticism. Here's what you have. Do you know how later there's one man called Julius Caesar? Did others take Caesar as the official title? Yeah, that wasn't their name, but that became the title. In fact, even Tsar comes from Caesar and things like that. It is very likely that this was an official political title. Darius, Darius, was like saying what today about the president. Now, we, when we talk about president, we could say, and we've done it, Obama, Trump, Clinton, and everybody knows we mean the president. Or we can call him the president. Or what other titles does he get? When it comes to the military, what's he called? Commander-in-chief. Okay. Is it the same person? Which title is correct? So when we write history, can you use different, different terms for the same person? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you probably have different titles. If your family were writing your history, they might use your first name. They might use your last name. They might use your nickname. Okay. I mean, seriously, some people have nicknames. I don't know where they came from. Yeah, right? I've gone to the hospital. I was calling on Bud. They said, well, what's his name? Bud. Okay. And they said, well, that's not his name. You know, it dawned on me. It really isn't, but I don't know his name. Okay. Do you ever have those things happen? You don't. So in this passage, could it be that when it was written, it's not a contradiction, but he's using a political title, not a personal name? Is that a possibility? Hello? Okay, is that a possibility? Okay, therefore, is there a contradiction? No, and we do this all the time. But you think, and I do, if God just didn't do that at all, it would be easier. But that's okay. God could have done By the way, it could be also, there is this suspicion that it's not only a uh, possible political title, it could have been early on in the Medo-Persian, there's another indication when they talk about a Gambuses and another Gabaru who were involved with the military, they are called Dariuses. So, and they were generals. It could be a military title. We don't know. 
It could be the political, it could be a military, but there's indication in historical record that it wasn't just a name, it was a title at one time that basically became a name further on. So, um, the questions that come up, and, I, and I'm going to say it, even though for you sitting here today, you say, I really don't care, but just so you have information's sake, um, there, is, there is debate because of historical record and because of different things, was it actually Cyrus, the one who led the army in? That's a possibility. We don't know. There is also records that say it was his son who led the army in the actual attack, and therefore when the city fell, he claimed it in the name of his father. Therefore, Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. No contradiction. Because does, does that ever happen elsewhere? That generals, invaders, uh, that emperors have their generals take over a city? And it's named that I claim it in the name of whoever the emperor is. And there's some in indication that the military general was Gabaru, who was also called Darius. That's the idea of, okay, that could be a, a, a military title. Whatever you have, whatever you think, okay, in conclusion, because we can't be specific, mark down in your Bible. Make sure you put it in your Bible. This is no contradiction. Because when you read commentaries, you read other articles about Daniel 5 and future study, you're going to run into this. This is going to be a criticism of the, of the book of Daniel based on this one name, mention of a name, and it's not that extreme to suggest that what we're saying here, but people will just, because they're against the Bible, they will come up with anything. So, no conflict, no problem, but you have that information. The city falls this way, by the way. The Medo-Persians, though this was an invincible city, they divert the river, the Euphrates River, to go into the marshes. It lowers. They're able to wade some men in, like the Trojan horse. They get some people inside to open up the gates. And so they wade in underneath the gates that were in the riverbed, and they go in, get into the city, and the city is destroyed in one night. And uh, when I say destroyed, taken over. Uh, in one night, and it falls suddenly. Now, this is exactly what pre was predicted in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 47, read it through. It's a prediction of the fall of Babylon, how it will be sudden, it will be quick, while they are feasting and celebrating, just as God said. So the Persians, they come in, just like Daniel, and by the way, I want to remind you, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 occur before Daniel 5 happened. The, Daniel has his visions, his dreams of the emperors, the new empire coming along, the Medo-Persians taking out the Babylonians. Then after he has those visions and dreams, then Daniel 5 actually occurred. So the first six chapters are historical in chronological order, not one after another, but they're in history. The next seven to twelve chapters, they're giving you what happened in between some of that. And so Daniel already knew that, they, that Babylon was on the uh, cusp of being destroyed. And uh, so then we have other historical information. Let's, let's give you a couple lessons, okay, just from this, this one and then jump into the lion's den if we can. Be careful to remember what you have learned, okay? This is based on Belshazzar as a young man learning but then ignoring and forgetting, okay? And so we challenged ourselves a couple weeks ago, and I made that statement. You know, do you remember what I spoke a week or so ago? And Jeff, you were the smart one in the room that remembered. I did, I'm standing here. I was telling Jeff afterwards. When I made that comment to you, do you remember? We, we forget the Word of God so quickly. Do you remember what I preached the week before? And you piped up. And I'm standing here thinking, what did I preach? What did I preach? And you said, I didn't preach. Micah preached. Yeah, and it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I didn't even remember I didn't preach. Okay, but you, we have sometimes we forget so quickly. Okay, need to remember. Let's throw this up. Okay, God sees all our sins, especially when we mock Him. 
And if we're, if we're dissing God, okay, you're infringing on his glory. Let's make it third. Those who know more will be held to a greater judgment and correction. And by the way, I'm, I, I don't think this is a stretch. You know more than most people in this world about the Word of God. As a, as a group, you know a whole lot more about the Word of God than many people in this world. To whom much is given... Yeah, yeah. Let's think number four. God confronts our sins. When we do, we should tremble. We should be moved by the Spirit of God to say, oh, 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 oh. When God exposes our sins, we are always found wanting. Belshazzar's exposed. He is found greatly wanting. Number six, all religious activities, these feasts to idols, these wise men who come in who are supposed to be religious leaders, all of them are hollow before the Lord. And I'm going to add this. They're very shallow. They don't know anything compared to the Lord. Do you remember how we mentioned this last week? That God, in his wisdom, he makes the wise things of the world to look foolish. Okay, that's the wise men in this text, how God can do that. Number seven, when confronted by sin, we should immediately repent before God. Immediately. We hear the word of God this morning, teen camp. Immediately when the kids, some of them responded so well that all of a sudden immediately when it's saying, okay, you need, to, you need to make a decision. You haven't been praying. You haven't been witnessing. You haven't been reading the word of God. And oftentimes when Joe would give an invitation, it was sweet to see immediately a number of the kids raised their hand and asked for prayer. Wise kids to do that. Wise kids to do that. Number eight, God deals with unrepentant persons with appropriate judgments with appropriate judgments. He is not this vindictive, this, this um, out-of-control deity who's venting on people. He's Belshazzar. Belshazzar deserved the judgment that he got because of what he had done. Um, in fact, the Scripture says, He that being often reproved in hardening his heart, his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, not without remedy. We jump into number nine. The people, this is an important thought, the people God uses are not immune from correction when they do wrong. Sometimes we think, okay, God's using me, I'm a teacher, therefore I'm immune. I can't get bit by chastisement. Did, who's the people in this story, in this book, who are the people that God used up to this point who all of a sudden they're judged? in charge of what? I bless you, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar could be there, and God used him. You're right. I'm thinking in a broader spans. Did God use the Babylonians? They were called his servant or his vessel in other passages. How were they used by God? And they're, they're a pagan empire. How did God use the Babylonians? chastisement to the that's it. they were used to chasten the Jews by the way I, I think Scott you, uh, did you bring this up to me last week about the purging was that you we were talking about the idolatry yeah okay uh, right that it, this, this is a critical point in history for the Jews the Jews when they went into captivity in that 70 years of captivity the one thing that they did not come back with is they didn't come back with idolatry it was finally purged, finally purged in that captivity. Now, they came back with legalism and traditionalism, okay? But that, uh, that pagan idolatry, that the, it, it, was, it was taken out. Before then, during the time of Solomon, was there idolatry? During the kings, was there idolatry? Yeah, right in the temple proper. 
Okay, so God used the Babylonians to chasten the Jews. They were the vessel that was used, but they were not immune to divine judgment. Just because God uses us doesn't mean we're, we get you know, out-of-jail-free cards. Did I say that right? Get out of jail free. Yeah, we don't. We don't. We aren't immune from chastisement. Read the text. Go through them. And if you read the text, I need to say this. But write this down. The reason that God destroys the Babylonians, He says it to them in Jeremiah chapter fifty. If you look it up, He says that because of the way you treated my Jewish people, how even though they were your captives, you went too far. You were too brutal. You were you were too aggressive. And do you remember what the other thing He says? One, you, you attacked my people, therefore I'm destroying you, the Babylonians. Something else that they did. It's, it's in this story. No, it's, not the, it's not a repentance. Something they did in the story we just told that God was highly, highly offended by. The, the, the temple vessels. He makes that comment in Jeremiah. Because you desecrated my temple vessels... I will destroy you. By the way, Jeremiah is writing at the same time here. Jeremiah is writing about what's happening in... Ba- in he's, he's writing in that period of, of uh, Babylonian invasions when they're proud and they're haughty and they're attacking. So he's writing a few decades before Daniel does, but he's predicting, here's what's going to happen. You're gonna, you are going to be destroyed because of your anti-Semitism and because of your profanity or profaning of my temple vessels that they're destroyed. Number 10. God elevates faithful people above those who ridicule their faith. Faithful people serve God and others because it is right, not for rewards. Number 12, godliness is noticed by others and God. This is all about Daniel. Godliness exalts a person. Therefore, it is wise to examine ourselves on a regular basis. Um, Let me just throw this out. Did Daniel examine his life to make sure he is right with God? How do you know that? It's true, he did. How do you know that? Let's go back to when he was 15 years old. Did he examine the very food he ate by the word of God? Yes. When we live an unexamined life, there's danger. When we live the examined life and go by the word of God, there are blessings such as boldness, such as wisdom such as insights. Let's build upon that when we get back to the book of Daniel. Thanks for listening.